morning, uh, the text of scriptures is um, in Matthew 2, verses 16 to 23. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the, that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achilles was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophets might, he, might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Esther. Father, we say thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us uh, truth to found our lives on. And Lord, it is sometimes hard when we discover that your providence is painful. And I ask you, would you bless our souls through this word and let your word speak to our hearts, each one of us. Jesus, you often said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Lord, I, I would pray the same thing this morning. Let us hear what you would want to say to us through your word this morning. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to praise you. And Lord, we praise you in song. Now let us praise you through this word that we find before us. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we are moving through the gospel of Matthew. This is the Christmas story. And yet we discover today, this is a part of the Christmas story that you probably never hear read as the Christmas story is being told. But the, the point of contradiction or, not contradiction, but I guess consternation is the word I'm looking for, is what happens when providence is painful? What, what do you do when you discover that providence, the providence of God is painful because these examples, these two stories that we see before us this morning are, are painful. We have been following uh, Jesus and his beginnings as his life is unfolding and seeing what has happened with his family. We, last week we met the wise men as they came to worship Jesus and we've discovered that King Herod has it out for Jesus and we saw an angel come and give direction to Joseph to take Jesus into Egypt in order to escape the, the reign of Herod who is intending to murder this child. 
And so that's where we, we pick up, is that the wise men have, have departed. Uh, we saw that in the, light, the previous paragraph. And we pick up in verse 16, where after the wise men depart, they are warned, actually before they depart, they're warned from an angel that Herod, he's not in asking, come back and tell me where the, the new king is, because I want to go worship him too, like you guys. An angel tells them he's not sincere. His motives are wicked and evil, so don't go back and tell him. They obey and go home a different way, and a short span of time passes, and Herod realizes he's been tricked. The wise men were actually wiser than he gave them credit for, and they have gone home in a different way and have not told him where the king was. And yet he knew, according to prophecy, that the newborn king was born in Bethlehem. So Herod unleashes his hatred and terror on Bethlehem. And so we have two instances before us this morning. The first paragraph is verses 16 to 18, which I will just call bereavement in Bethlehem because of the death of all of these little children, the boys who are two years old and under. And then the second portion is basically the relocation of Jesus and his family with Joseph out of Egypt and back into the land of Israel, which is simply the relocation of Nazareth. Both of those scenes entail suffering to some degree and, and pain in some degree. The suffering, of course, in the first instance with the death of the children is very different from the, the difficulty and the, the grief that have to pick up your family and move. And yet both of them are, are, are told to us unfold according to the fulfillment of the word of the Lord. Both instances, the fulfillment language is used. So verse 17, after this, this death happened of the babies under two baby boys, verse 17 says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Something was fulfilled in this painful and terrible event. And then when, when Joseph arrives back in Jerusalem, he gets redirected to Nazareth. And also we see in verse 23, Matthew tells us, then was fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. My question is, this is unfolding according to the, the fulfillment language, the providence of God. So what do you do when God's providence in your life is painful? And, and so let's define the, the, the doctrine of providence. Essentially, there are several elements. The, the doctrine of providence is the collection of teaching, which is what doctrine is. Doctrine is simply the teaching that we see in Scripture which points us to an understanding that, first of all, God created all things. He sustains all things and keeps all things in existence. He continues to uphold the universe by the word of his power, we are told. He then actively cooperates in those things in the universe that he is sustaining and carrying along and directs those events of the course of, of uh, throughout the whole world in such a way that in the end, all of God's goals and, and desires are accomplished for the reasons for which he created him in the first place. That's the doctrine of providence. So God created all things. He's actively at work in them. He sustains them and then cooperates with them, directs them to fulfill the purposes for which he created them in the first place. That's what the bulk of teaching from Scripture tells us. And my question to you is, when you're reading God's Word and you come across hard texts, what do you do? Right? And someone said last week, I really like the fact that we're moving through uh, a, a book of the Bible because then you can't skip all the hard stuff. 
It's like, yeah, that's exactly right. So pray for me because there's some hard stuff in God's word. And yet, God has revealed it for a reason. He wants you to know this because you're going to bump into pain in your life and suffering. Many of you are in the middle of it. You're, you are in the middle of a hurricane right now in varying degrees, and yet God's word reveals to us he's sovereign over everything that unfolds in this world. And I don't think there's any other teaching that will sustain you through suffering except that. That knowing that God is at work in the pain in your life. And the Bible acknowledges this pain. It doesn't jump around. And so God has revealed this to us for a reason. Now he doesn't reveal everything. He doesn't answer all your questions, but he does reveal some things and he gives you what you need in the moment. And I, I ground this in Deuteronomy 29, 29, which says this, secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children that we may do the words of this law. Hard things that are revealed in scripture is intended for you to wrestle with it and teach your kids. You need to teach your kids that, that hard things will happen in this world, but that God is sovereign over them all, and he is working a plan through it, which you might not understand, and you might not fully grasp. But yet, we are told his power, his sovereignty, his providence, his governing of those things is for your good and also for the glory of the Lord. Because if you don't know that, you will wilt under the suffering of your life. You will wilt. So the hard texts provide firm foundation for your faith. And that's my prayer this morning, that what we see in this, this text will give you rock, spiritual rock to stand on. And so the first problem here, the first uh, portion of the scripture, 16 to 18, the bereavement in Bethlehem. We see, uh, let me just read it one more time to get our heads around it. Then Herod, verse 16, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. That's a, that's a powerful word. He became furious such that he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children because she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now this is a tragic story, but Matthew sees in it a fulfillment of something that was spoken by Jeremiah who lived about 550 years before. He sees something spoken here that fulfills what was said earlier. That's the providence of God. That's the, that's the connection with providence. God's directing events to explain something and disclose something. And so here Jeremiah speaks about something and, and Matthew sees a connection to it. Now, many of you know, um, scholars doubt everything. There are some people who doubt this didn't really happen because we don't have any external verification of this tragedy. And if somebody had slaughtered babies in the village, we would have had some historical record. Uh, the primary source for the first century activity is from Josephus, who lived during the first century. He was a Jewish historian, not necessarily a believer, but a secular historian. But he wrote uh, two in books on the life of Herod. 
And some people say, he didn't write about this, and so this can't be true. Matthew is making this up. He's making it up so that you can falsely put your faith in Scripture, which really hasn't been fulfilled. And I would simply say the opposite. Uh, Matthew believes this is factual and real. And so why... What, is, what does um, Josephus tell us about Herod? He, he writes an incredible amount of Herod. And if you want to get a character sketch of Herod, you realize you don't want him as your neighbor. First of all, he married 10 wives. All of them produced princes. And it took a while for the family dynamics to unfold. But after the boys were old enough to realize only one of them could succeed Herod to kingdom, they began poisoning each other. So the family uh, was falling apart and disintegrating. Uh, eventually, Herod uh, discovers the plotting of his sons and becomes so angry, he kills three of them, murders three of his own sons for sedition. He got ticked off at his favorite wife, who was Mary Amney, and had her executed, and then killed her mother-in-law. He killed three cousins and several uncles, and anybody else politically who would get t- ticked off at him, or, or he would get ticked off at, and his last act, what I think I mentioned last week, was he commanded at his death the gathering of of several hundred Jewish officials into the Hippodrome in Jericho so that at his death, at the moment of his death, the command was to execute all of the Jewish officials because he knew no one would weep for him and so he wanted mourning to be happening in the land at the time of his death. Nobody's going to weep for him, so he's going to kill Jewish leaders in order to affect it. My question, is this the kind of guy who could, who could order the death of children? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question he's the kind of guy who had done this. So the fact that Josephus chose not to write about this, simply he might not have known about it. Bethlehem was a small town, population probably of at least... Uh, at most, a thousand or so, and, and some have said even as little as 300. And in a situation like that, there would have only been 12 to 15 boy children, male children, under the age of two living at this time. And, and that Herod would have commanded the execution of them. Maybe that just got lost in history. Josephus is writing about a hundred years after the fact. So perhaps he just didn't know about it. And given all of the other atrocities that Herod was doing, perhaps this, this, this command to kill Jewish leaders was something that he chose to record rather than the smaller one. He's, he's intending to kill hundreds. So it, the, you know, one, one, we hear some scholars who would often say, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. This is an argument from some silence to say that just because Josephus didn't write about this, this didn't happen. Well, Matthew believes it happened, and he's convinced this expresses fulfillment of God's word. I believe Matthew. I'm going to vote with Matthew. I don't care what Josephus included or didn't include. My faith is in Scripture, and so I invite you to trust here too. So the question then is, why is this included? Why did Matthew include this event, this painful, terrible event, and then say it fulfills, as, as we see in verse 18, uh, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud rem- lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, for she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, when you see a, an Old Testament quotation, what is your impulse? 
you want to go and look at it, right? Let's go look at the context in which we find this passage. This, this verse and him saying fulfillment, uh, we find it in Jeremiah 31, which is what Wes read to you, a little short summary of Jeremiah 31. That passage of scripture, that whole chapter to get the context of it, comes out of the exile to Babylon. Jeremiah lived through that, which is also very interesting. You know the prophet Jeremiah was a good guy. He loved the Lord. He was faithful to preach God's word. He loved his people. He pleaded with them. He obediently followed God's every command. He, he walked with the Lord. He listened to his word, faithfully expounded on it, and he got exiled from his land. He did not deserve that. And yet he went, and went through that suffering because his whole nation was suffering. Sometimes we suffer because of the people around us. In this case, Jeremiah walked through this suffering being faithful to the Lord, and yet he still had to experience the alienation and exile. And yet, this whole passage does not speak about despair. You might think from this one quotation that Jeremiah 31 is all about sadness and lamentation and weeping. It's not. If you go back and read the whole chapter, it is incredible the verses that you will find. Let me just read a couple of verses, some that Wes uh, read, read to you and some that he didn't. Verse 16 says this, thus says the Lord. This is the very next verse from the verse that Matthew quoted. The very next verse says this, keep your voice from weeping. Here's, here's an expression of weeping and lamentation. And then Jer God says through Jeremiah, keep your voice from weeping and your ears from tears, and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. The children who the mothers are weeping for as they're going into exile, that's, that's what Matthew is pointing to. He is personifying Rachel who's dead in the grave, buried near Bethlehem, as weeping for all of the exiles who are passing by. So they're going north into Bethlehem. Out of, out of Jerusalem, uh, this, this town, Ramah, is about five miles north of Jerusalem. On their way up and over to get to Babylon in the exile, they have to pass through Ramah. And so Jeremiah is personifying the mothers of Israel who are weeping for their exiled children as they pass through the town. And yet God says these things. 17, there is a hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? Ephraim standing in the place for all of Israel. For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still, right? He's got some problems. There's some sin in his life, but I remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Verse 25, I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will re replenish. And it shall come to pass as I have watched over them to pluck down and break, or pluck up and break down, to overthrow and destroy and bring harm. So I will watch over them to plant and build, declares the Lord. What is he saying? As the nation goes into exile because of their sin, and justly so, God is saying, I want you to hope beyond it. As they're walking out of town to go into 70 years of exile, God is saying to them, you'll come back. I am disciplining you, but I will bring you back. 
Yes, you're being punished right now, but have hope. There is a future. Your children will return. And some of you parents, you're praying for the return of your children. Some of you are children who need to return. No matter how old you are, you need to return to the Lord. And yet here we see the Lord doing something in Israel that is also happening in Jesus. And we saw this last week. Jesus is beginning to represent Israel. In in the ways in which Israel was intended to represent God to the world and failed, Jesus is now rising up as the redeeming son of God in order to rightly represent God to the world and not fail. Israel went into exile and that's the connecting thought here. Jesus in this passage in Matthew is also going into exile. He he is being sent away. He's in a a political refugee, more or less. Herod's trying to kill him, and for safety, he then is told, Joseph is told, take your family and go to Egypt in order to save the child. So as Israel went into exile, so Jesus is now going into exile. As, As Israel walked through tears, so Jesus's beginnings are now unfolding with tears. And yet the promise is that God will grant hope. So I think Matthew is acknowledging here there's a a new creation that is happening in Jesus. God is doing something amazing and don't despair for this little baby will bring hope to Israel in the way that hasn't been brought before. He is the descendant of David. He's the son of Abraham. He will bring about the hope that we longed for and that we promised. So Matthew is pointing us to take note of this little baby. This, he's, a, he's a toddler at this time. He's about two years old, we see. And so even though there are tears, yet through those tears, there's hope. Through death comes the promise of life. And although there is suffering surrounding the beginnings of Jesus, the providence of God is beginning to unfold because this child will be the one that the promise that every tear will be wiped away, every tear that is shed will be wiped away. He's the one that that promise will, will be affected through. Jesus is that one. And there might also be one more thing that I think Matthew is pointing us to in in this sad story because in Jeremiah 31, the first half of the chapter deals with the exile. The last half is the promise of the new covenant. It is that promise that God will change the heart of a nation and turn their hearts to him completely. If you remember before Moses died as he stood in front of the whole nation. And I, I, I wonder what this actually looked like. He stood in front of them and said, to this very day, you don't have a heart to obey the Lord. You, you've, you've seen his miracles. You eat miraculous manna for breakfast every day and you still don't believe him. Your hearts are still so hard. You don't trust him. And he looked forward to a day when God would pour out his spirit in such a way that hearts would be transformed. And that promise is right here in Jeremiah 31 at the end of the chapter, which is what Matthew is, is, is taking our attention to by saying this is fulfilled. And I just wonder, does Matthew want us to have not just hope that God will bring us back external blessings, but that he will effect internal transformations through Jesus in him being the one through whom the new covenant is given? might be what he's doing. 
So Israel was like a son to God. Jesus is now the son of God. Jesus entered into this broken world and he himself said, this is my body which is broken for you. He then walked in order to redeem Israel. He had to represent Israel and walk where they walk, follow their steps and unfold God's providence which involved much pain. And Jesus is the one who has fully entered into all of the pain and suffering that we experience in this world. And he brings the hope of a new covenant. Is that the fulfillment that I I wonder that Matthew wants us to cling to? Because we walk through suffering, many of us. And yet there is hope beyond it. There is the promise of a transformed heart. And some of you, I think, are your hearts transformed? Have you... Have you just been listening to the words of truth, but not being transformed by them? Because we can go to church a lot and hear truth, and we can even get a great score on a theological test, some of us, and yet your heart remained untransformed by experiencing the Spirit of God and being converted, completely changed from the inside out. My prayer would be, ask that question. Is your heart been changed? Are you a church attender? Are you a worshiper? These wise men came to worship. They bowed down in his presence. And Jesus is the one who pours out the new covenant to transform our hearts. Pray for that. If you know within you, I don't have a living relationship with Jesus. I invite you right now, start praying in your heart. Jesus, would you grant me that transformation? Would you grant me the full effect of the new covenant that comes through Jesus? Because that's what he died to give. That's what he died to purchase for us. So that's the first thing. There's hope beyond the tears. There's, there's freedom beyond the exile. And Jesus is entering into that. The second little episode here is in verses 19 to 23, and this is the relocation to Nazareth. So Jesus is in Egypt. As we pick up the scene, an angel tells Joseph, now Herod has died, and so go back to the land of Egypt, uh, to Israel. Let me read this, 19 to 23. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruler over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets, notice that's plural, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this relates to the providence of God because God intervenes through a dream and an angelic messenger in order to redirect Joseph. And what is interesting, Joseph did not want to go to Nazareth. That was not where he was headed. And and we don't, Matthew does not tell us this, but Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth before the pregnancy. And they went from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, Joseph is in Egypt, and when the angel says, go back to Israel, where's he going to go? 
I expected him to go back to Nazareth because that's where he was living before Jesus was born. And yet he doesn't. He, he goes back into Judea, which he discovers now is being ruled by Archelaus, who's one of the sons of Herod. Now, Herod did something at his death, and, uh, but all of his sons killing each other, he divided the whole kingdom into three parts. And so there are three different areas that three different sons began to rule over. And he uh, goes back and discovers Archelaus, who followed in the footsteps of Herod and became like his father and was as brutal as his father. Joseph is afraid to go back and into that region, which is Judea, which is where Bethlehem is. I think Joseph was headed back to Bethlehem. I think he was going back to where they were when the angel told him to leave. And as he's headed there, and the angel says, Joseph, you're essentially right to be afraid of Archelaus. Don't go there. I want you to instead find your way into Galilee. And that's where he goes and he lands in Nazareth. Now, it's interesting that verse 20 says that those who sought the child's life are dead. So go back. This is almost the exact same language that God said to Moses when he commanded him to go back to uh, Egypt. Because you remember, Moses had to flee from Egypt for his life. And then when uh, he was told by God, go back for those who sought your life are dead. Almost the exact same language. And, and one wonders, if you know God's word in your mind and you hear this language, you're gonna go back to think, is, is Moses being brought in here because we're having this comparison with Jesus. And does Matthew want us to see that Jesus will now, he will be a better leader than Moses? He will be a greater deliverer than was Moses? And even beyond that, there are many similarities to what is unfolding in Jesus's life at this point and also what is unfolding, what unfolded in Moses's life. For just as a king sought to put Moses to death, so a king has sought to put Jesus to death. And just as Moses had to flee the city in order to save his life, so Jesus has had to flee the city in order to save his life. And just as at the time of Moses's birth, a king had commanded the male Hebrew children to be killed, so at the time of Jesus' birth, a king has commanded male children to be killed. And yet, Moses failed. Moses did not get to go into the promised land. And yet, Jesus here is now becoming the one through whom God would effect his, his plan, and that would change things. And so, Jesus is being held up here as a kind of deliverer. Matthew's getting our attention. And the difficulty of a move, put yourself in this situation for a second. You ever moved house? Anybody move? It, was it a party? Did you like it? Uh, what, what happened with Joseph? This is a different kind of suffering. So here, here's, we've had the, the suffering of loss, the death of children. That's one kind of suffering. But another difficulty is when you have to uproot your entire family and go someplace else into an entirely different country. And you're there for a while and just imagine it. You know, the little neighborhood they're living in, Jesus finally makes some friends. He's playing with some little buddies, you know, they're having a good time. He finally makes some new friends and now he has to leave those guys. And, and Mary has been, you know, Mother's Morning Out has been great. She's made some new friends as well and she's got to abandon all of those friends. Joseph maybe has coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, you know, in Egypt every once in a while. And he, all his coffee buddies, he, he now has to leave them and they all have to now go back, pick up and go back to Jerusalem. And I just wonder, what was the move like? 
I mean, did Mary say, all right, Joseph, we have to go back. I mean, can we at least stop at the beach in Gaza for a couple days on the way? Can we have a little vacation? And, and, and Jesus is like, I want to see the pyramids one more time, please, before we leave. I have no idea what's going on, but I, moving, in my experience, has never been pleasant. Every time I have ever moved in my life, it has involved pain. Like the rental truck that I rented once and was, was driving to the house and it broke down three miles from the rental facility and I had a whole team of guys waiting at the house. This was before cell phones too. Whole team of guys waiting to move out the house and into the moving truck and I'm stuck with a dead truck. Finally get it resolved, but I'm like an hour late to the house and all these guys who had promised pizza after we get everything moved are there, and my, and my father-in-law is, he's, okay. He said, you know what, uh, come here, let me tell you something. He said, they have these things called phones. That, that's what, it was his first words to me. It wasn't, are you okay? Did something happen? Were you, why are you late? His first words, they have these things called phones. Yeah, I know, but I couldn't get to one, dear father-in-law. And yet, moving is not pleasant. So my point is, there's various kinds of difficulty that we go through in life. Some are very severe, the loss of life. Others are just unsettling. Whether it's unsettling your family, unsettling the rhythm of your life, unsettling expectations of what family life is going to be like, what church life is going to be like. There are things that are upsetting to your soul. And the question is, what do we do with them? What do we do with them? Now, this providential arrangement here is seen in the fact that an angel directed Joseph back to Nazareth. And we're told that that fulfills a prophecy. Now, look with me at verse 23 as we we close. Right? This, um, verse 23, he went and lived in Nazareth that that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, many people stumble over this because there's no, you can't do a, a word search and find that phrase in the Old Testament. That he shall be called a Nazarene is not a quote in the Old Testament in the sense that it refers to a particular prophecy. And so many people have seen, again, Matthew's making this up. It's not true. Don't put your trust in Scripture. This is false. And, and my, my, my hint is that he's not quoting a particular person. Is The prophets is plural. He's not quoting one prophecy from one prophet. He quotes the prophets, which tells me he's illustrating a theme that comes out by several prophets. And when you are called a Nazarene, that was an insult. In the day, that was an insult. And in fact... This was a stumbling block to some of the early disciples. Nathaniel, who was one of the disciples that Philip went and got, he said, hey, we have found the Messiah. And he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, what? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like, I'm from Shepherdsville. And I think, can anything good come out of Shepherdsville, Kentucky? Right? It's a little podunk, nothing of a little town, except everybody in Shepherdsville will throw stones at me for saying that. But it's a very humble place. Nazareth is the same way. It is a despised place. What Matthew is pointing to is the fact that Jesus will be a despised leader. He will not be a celebrated king. 
He is going to identify with alienated people and he will not be welcomed as royalty. He's going to be a very different kind of savior. And we see this in several places in scripture. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 11, 49 and 53, and Daniel 9. Let me just read one verse that illustrates this is probably what Matthew is talking about. Isaiah 53, 2 says this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He's, he's a royal king, but he has no majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was not on the cover of GQ. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That's our savior described 700 years before he arrived. And that's only good news if you're a despised person. If you are not highly esteemed, you can identify with a guy like this. If you are familiar with grief, you can identify with a savior like this. If you are used to being left out when the teams got picked, this is a guy who was rejected also. If you are sad and depressed because you don't look like you wish you looked, this is a guy who, who you can identify with as a savior. And so here, what do we see? Matthew is pointing out, Jesus is the Messiah who has come to deliver a nation from exile. Exiled from God, Jesus became despised by men so that men who put their faith in Jesus would not be despised by a holy God. And here we see this, this alienation, this, this low, humble esteem that we see on Jesus. Why? So that he can save lowly people. So that he can save people who, who aren't superstars. Jesus is a savior who will save anyone who will put faith in him. And weakness is one of those things that Jesus knows very much about. So when you're suffering, and suffering does exist, what do you do? Where is your faith? We often think we don't have a right. I, I don't deserve this, right? I don't, I don't deserve the suffering that I'm going through. If there was ever a person on the planet, any human being who ever lived who didn't deserve to suffer, is Jesus Christ. He committed no sin. There was no deceit in him, no guile in him at all. And he suffered greatly, if anybody could say, I don't deserve this, it's Jesus. And yet he com was completely innocent and embraced suffering in this world. He entered into a suffering world. So if suffering would keep you from believing in God, know that it didn't keep Jesus from believing in God. He went through vastly more suffering than any person on this planet has gone through and he still kept his faith in God the Father. And so, he, in fact, Hebrews says this, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross. Meaning, my son, I wonder what that conversation was like. My son, will you go and save them? Will you enter into their suffering? Will you abide with them and walk through the pain that they go through? And, he's, and on the other side of it, I promise you, eternal joy. And Jesus said, yes, I will do it to save them. 
I will go through all that so that they can know the joy of living with you here in heaven forever. Jesus endured all the mess, the death, the abuse, the rejection, being despised in order to save people who put their faith in him so that we too could enjoy the the eternal bliss with the heavenly father. And so would we be willing then to endure some suffering during this life without losing our faith? I, I had lunch with someone this week who is paralyzed and because of the paralysis, he discovered a living relationship with Jesus. And he said something like, I would not go back to the strength of a normal body without Jesus. I I would stay in my state that I am weakened in and my paralysis in. I would rather be here and have Jesus. It's not a direct quote, but that was the essence of what he said. And he said, some people think I'm crazy. Well, that just depends on what you treasure most. If you treasure Jesus more than anything, then there awaits a heavenly joy that is beyond comparison to the sufferings of this world. And and that is what Jesus came to purchase for us. He came to give us life. So what do you do when providence is painful? Just a couple of points. Saturate yourself in God's word. Matthew drew strength from God's word. When you're suffering, stay in God's word because the one thing that the enemy will want you to do, stop reading your Bible. It doesn't mean anything. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. Don't. Keep reading God's words. Second, steadfastly hope in a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your hope grounded in him. Don't let anything move you. Secondly, remember that God has purposes through pain. He has your good and his glory intended through the pain that we go through. And when providence is painful, surrender your life to a savior who will transform your heart. And I plead with you, don't let go of Christ. Pray that God would give you the fullness of his Holy Spirit and transform you from the inside out if you have not surrendered your life fully to him. And then lastly, when providence is painful, worship the Lord. That's what these wise men did. They chose to worship in the middle of all of the difficulty that they had to get through of getting there and then a king who's wanting to kill this little guy and yet they they came before the Lord and worshiped. That's what we did. We worshiped in song. And so I want to invite you to to, to pray with me. I want to invite you also when we sing in just a moment and we're going to have the prayer stations open as the song begins. We're going to invite Um, if you need prayer, if you need someone to pray with you, just move to a prayer station. But I want to give you a moment just to pray uh, alone and and ask the Lord, what, what is the state of my soul? Am I trusting you? Do I trust you through suffering? Or am, am I only resting in the Lord when things are good? The, the call of Christian faith is to worship and abide in Christ no matter the circumstances of life. It is to trust completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's pray together. Father, you know the state of our souls. And you know 
the, the motivations of our heart, you know the conditions of our hearts. And Lord, I ask you, would you, by, by your spirit, grant a, a measure of faith to those who are suffering among us so that they can sense your presence in, their, in the lives of your children. Lord, some in this room have lost loved ones in the past week. And Father, I ask you to pour out your blessings on those persons. Others have been without jobs for a long time. Father, grant, grant the need. Lord, others have been alienated from friends, loved ones, family members. God, heal our relationships. And Lord, I pray, would you be gracious to us today? Lord Jesus, would you grant faith to those of us who are weak? Would you transform lives? Would you pour out your spirit and grant living relationships with you, real and vibrant, I pray? And Lord, as we sing, may we these words of this song be an expression of praise to you, that we will praise you whether we are suffering or whether things are sweet. May we praise you with all of our hearts. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.